I do appreciate this opportunity to stand before you this morning. I do want to say just a special thank you at first just to Fellowship Church here in Lubbock just for hosting this conference and for the hospitality that uh, you have shown myself and, and all of us that are involved in this. Very appreciative of that. Very thankful for Colin and leading our worship as he's done and those who have joined him here on stage. I'm going to say a special word of thank you to Francisco and Brian for just getting to join them and to hear them open up the Word of God and share the truth to us. I do want to say a special and a last thank you to, to Eric, uh, one brother just for inviting me to be a part of this, um, for opening up the Word that you did for us last night, for the hospitality you've shown me, you and Jessica. Uh, just always very thankful for you. Though I must let you know in on something that I'm not sure they're going to invite me over anymore. They heard I don't like to eat beans. And so that could be a deal breaker for us in our relationship. But I do just want to share this about Eric. Just very thankful for him. He is a dear friend, a dear brother uh, in Christ to me, uh, especially even as a fellow pastor. And so I'm just very humbled and thankful for that. This morning, my assignment that was given to me was about speaking to you in regards to having a biblical view of the church. I hope there's one thing that each of you take away from this conference, from every session that we've had. That is, whether you're wanting a view about God, man, sin, scripture, salvation, that it must be founded on the Word of God. And that same truth holds for the church as well. As I thought about this particular topic, there were just various ways I considered approaching it. But I have chosen to speak to you in regards to having a biblical view in regards to the health of a church, the spiritual health of a church. But now before I do that, I would like to give you just a biblical definition of the church. And by the church, I mean the local church. If you have your Bible, open it up to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We're going to be here for just a moment before we go over to the book of Titus. And I'm not going to read through all of chapter 1. But when you're thinking about what does God's word say about the local church? In chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians in verse 2, it says, To the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, with all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. So I thought about that verse and even the rest of what Paul writes here, even in the first chapter of 1 Corinthians, the local church where you attend, the local church where you are a member, where hopefully you have identified, it is a community of God's people. Or you could say it's a gathering of God's people in a particular location. And these people are those who have been set apart in Christ Jesus from their sin unto salvation. 
is a collection and a gathering of God's people in a particular location who were effectually and sovereignly called by God through the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's a collection and a gathering in the community of God's people who have been graciously gifted by God to serve one another, fulfill the mission of Christ, as we just were dis discussing here a moment ago. A local church is those who have also have, who have identified with Christ. They've identified with Christ through believer's baptism. And finally, it is a community of people in a particular location who gather together in the name of Christ Jesus under godly leadership for the purpose of being a church. They actually gather together there to worship and to call on the name of Christ together as a church. I just wanted to go through that definition just for a moment, especially in light of our discussion during the Q&A, to understand that means online is not a church. There's no such thing as a digital church because there's no gathering. Personal life together. That also means that if Francisco and Brian and Eric and myself, if we decided we were going to get together on a regular basis and study the Word of God together, that's not a church. We couldn't call ourselves a church. We're a part of the church. We're a part of the local churches where we pastor. Just understand, the church is not just a group of people who get together, have fellowship, and may even open the Bible and sing some together. Oh, the church is a, and the local church is a community of God's people who are under a godly leadership that are there to worship God together, to use the gifts that God has given them to fulfill his mission and to serve one another in the body of Christ. Now, my question, though, I want to focus on this morning is, but then what is a healthy church? What is a healthy church? And this is where I want us to go over to the book of Titus. If you have your Bible, please join me over there for the rest of our time together. Because, see, if you were to ask a lot of people, what is a healthy church, they would you could use one word, they would say, well, let's just think about the size. The size of the families, the number of families that attend, the size, the size of their finances, their money, maybe even the size of their influence. But beloved, it's none of those things. See, I know even here at Fellowship Church, in the last year or two, you have moved from a smaller building to a larger building. But the sign of being a healthy church is not that you have more people that come. It's not that you have a bigger facility. It's not even that you have a bigger budget. You say, well, what is the sign of a healthy church? Well, a healthy church will be characterized in these two ways. And it's very simple. It will be characterized by sound doctrine that leads to sound living. Sound doctrine and sound living. 
That is, you will find in a spiritually healthy church, according to the Word of God, there a church that is proclaiming and protecting sound doctrine and one that is practicing and promoting sound living. This is what we find here in the book of Titus. This idea of soundness that we're thinking about, how important it is and what Paul is writing to Titus. You look down in chapter 1 and verse 9, he says there about the elders are going to be exhorting in sound doctrine. In verse 13, where he's talking about the false teachers that need to be reproved is so that they may be sound in the faith. In chapter 2 and verse 1, he says to Titus, But as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Older men, in verse 2, are to be sound in faith, in love, and in perseverance. He says even down in verse 8, in regards to the younger men, they need to be sound in speech, which is beyond reproach. And that word for sound there just really is for the word of, of hygiene, of being healthy being a spiritually healthy, strong, mature church in the Lord. I truly believe if you're here as a born-again believer, you, you have that desire in your heart. You want to be a part of a church. You want to see your church be and always be one that is healthy, one that is strong in the Lord. Now, as we come to this context and kind of walking through this together, just kind of setting the stage of what's going on here. If you look down in verse 5 of chapter 1, where Paul says, For this reason, talking to Titus, I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains. You see, Paul and Titus have been used of God to preach the gospel throughout the Isle of Crete. Thus, there were churches there in every city that they had visited. But they were young, immature, needing to be strengthened, instructed, organized, so that they could be a sound, spiritually strong church. Now, if you know anything about the ministry of the Apostle Paul, typically, he would do these things. He would go into a city, preach the gospel, God sovereignly saving a group of people that were there. He may leave for a little while, then he would come back to strengthen those disciples, organize those people into the church that God would want them to be. But on this occasion, for whatever reason, Paul's not coming back. So he's leaving Titus there as his representative. And he's leaving him there, from what you see there in verse 5, with the main task of setting in order what remains. There's two ways he's going to have to set things in order. One, there's going to be some things that are already have gone crooked that are going to need to be straightened out. And two, there's just some things that are going to need to be established that haven't been established already because Paul didn't have the opportunity Something I want you to pay very close attention to in verse 5 is where he says, in every city. And when you see that phrase, in every city, you can just think this way, in every local church. 
Every local church. He's saying, Titus, I don't care what city you walk into on the Isle of Crete. I don't care if you walk into Lubbock. I don't care if you walk into Midland. I don't care if you walk into Seminole. I don't care if you walk into Leveland. I don't care where it is that you walk in. When you go to this city where these people are here, here's what I want the church to look like. Every local church. I want them to be healthy. I want them to be sound. I want them to be strong. And here's how that's going to happen, Titus. By the proclaiming and the protecting of sound doctrine in those churches. And by the practicing and the promoting of sound living in those churches. That's what we're called to do. That's the kind of church that God wants us to be. So how is Titus going to accomplish that? What does Paul want him to do? Well, in regards to the proclaiming and protecting sound doctrine in the church, one of the first things he wants him to do there is about leadership. Just look again back in chapter 1, verse 5, where he says, appoint elders in every city as I directed you. He's saying, Titus, every local church must have biblically qualified men in leadership that are going to be there faithfully, lovingly fulfilling their responsibilities of shepherding those people, building them up and protecting them. He's saying, set in order what remains. The thing Paul didn't get around to being able to do that, again, if you go back and look in the book of Acts, you would see he would do in every place that he went. When he'd go in, he would always establish elders in those churches. Beloved, having elders, a plurality of elders in a local church is, is not an option. It's not optional. Not according to Paul. And here's how I just break down really the rest of this chapter. He said, Titus, here's what you need to do. Appoint elders. By elders, elders are simply pastors. If we had time, we would go over 1 Timothy chapter 3, and we would see that an elder is just simply a pastor, a pastor leader in the church. And he says, I want you to notice, he says, appoint elders, a plurality of men of leaders in the church. That's what I want you to do. And then secondly, he says, here's how I want you to do it. Look back in verse 5, as I directed you. So again, Titus didn't get to go in to any local church and just say, well, I'll just appoint elders however I want to do it. No, Paul said, Titus, you go do it as I told you to do it, as I directed you to do it. You follow my pattern." And then he says, well, who? Who would be the ones that you would appoint as elders? That's what he gives us there in verse 6 down to verse 9. Here, who are the people? It's the men who are above reproach in their character, the men who are above reproach in their capability of leading, their capability in the Word of God. He said, Titus, this is what you must do. You must go in and instruct these churches about eldership. 
You need to instruct them about the character they're looking for, the capability they're looking for among those men. Then after you've instructed them, you need to identify those men within that church and invest your life into those men so that they can be built up. And then after you've invested, there should be an inspection of those men by yourself and by the other people in the church. And then if they're past the inspection, they're, they're being installed, then as elders, appoint them. But then the last question that Paul answers here of why. Why is it this is so important to Paul? And he gives the answer beginning in verse 10. Four. Here's why. Because there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced because they're upsetting whole families. They're teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. We see in verse 14, they're, they're paying attention to Jewish myths, the commandments of men. They're turning away from the truth. They profess to know God, but by their deeds, they're denying Him. They are detestable, they're disobedient, and they're worthless for any good deed. Notice back in verse 10, we refer to them as the rebellious, these empty talkers. They're the deceivers, especially those of the circumcision. He's saying to Titus, Titus, if this church is, if any of these churches are going to be healthy, if they're going to stay strong, you're going to have to go in there and make sure they have biblically qualified men that are going to be able to teach and protect the church, especially in regards to the core teaching of the gospel and how someone gets saved. That is always at the core of a spiritually healthy church. They have and maintain a biblical understanding of the gospel, of the good news, and how it is that a person is actually saved by God. They're justified by God. It's going to be by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, because he's saying, Titus, there's already some men there in these communities, around these people, in these churches, and they're already deceiving people. Why? Because they're changing changing the gospel. They're adding something to it. And those are the circumcision. They're the, they're the most dangerous. And the reason why they're the most dangerous is because you could sit and listen to just about their entire gospel presentation and you would be saying, amen, amen, amen. They would talk about the person of Jesus, the deity of Jesus, humanity of Jesus. They'd be talking about Jesus dying on the cross, him dying on the cross for our sins, God raising him from the dead. And you'd all be sitting saying, amen, praise God for that. And then they would say, you've got to believe in that, amen. And you've got to be circumcised. And Paul says, you've got to cut them off. And the way you're going to do that and protect these churches, and here's why it's going to be so important for Titus to do this, because when you get to the end of, of the book of Titus, Titus is not staying there. He's not going to remain there forever. In fact, he tells Titus, when I send a couple of other guys to you, one or two other guys to you, I want you to leave and come back to me. So it's going to be important, Titus, that you take the time to invest and make sure that you appoint elders, biblically qualified men that are shepherds. Because one of the keys to a church being spiritually healthy is by the appointing of a plurality of godly men. 
Because notice what they're going to have to be able to do. Look back in verse 9. Because they're going to have to have the ability to exhort in sound doctrine, but they're also going to have to have the ability to refute. Refute those who are contradicting. And you know what they're contradicting? Look at the first part of verse 9. They're contradicting the teaching. What's the teaching? The teaching is the apostles' teaching. The teaching is the teaching of Paul. Again, Paul is not giving Titus this freedom to go in there and just teach whatever he wants to teach. He has to teach what Paul would teach, what Peter would teach. He has to teach what the apostles would teach. That's the faithful word. And that's what is sound doctrine. And when you contradict that, he says, you're gonna, these men are going to have to be able to refute that. This must be taken seriously. Paul took it seriously because he knew that the continuing health of each of these churches would depend on it. I mean, just think about it. And all that he had to say, the one or the main thing he focused on in regards to their capabilities and responsibilities is there in verse 9. They have to have the ability to exhort and sound doctrine and refute those contradict because there's already not just a few, there's many rebellious men there. The threat is already here, Titus. And beloved, we know the day and time in which we live, the threat has grown even larger. We were just talking about the threat of the, the, the digital world and how things can come at our people all the time. They're coming at you. And what's going to be key for these men is when you look back in verse 9 and he says, they have to be what? Holding fast. That is, clinging Clinging with all they have, clinging to everything. When you see the word there for holding fast, just think about allegiance. And notice again, what are they holding fast to? They're holding fast to the faithful word. What is the faithful word? It is that which is in accordance with the teaching. A body of teaching that Titus had to hold fast to. That's what Brian was sharing with us about Scripture. We have to hold fast to the Scripture. You have to hold fast to what it says. Which means, beloved, these qualified men are going to have to remain loyal in the face of some great winds that are going to be blowing against them. They're going to have to remain loyal in their attitude about the inerrancy of the Word of God. They're going to have to remain loyal, holding fast to their approach of Scripture because they're going to have people coming in and challenging them and saying, that's not the way you have to read that text. That's not the way you have to understand that. Look, we're all evolving. We're progressing. We're getting better at these things. We don't have to live by these old ways of thinking. He said, no, they have to hold fast. The teaching is the teaching and the teaching doesn't change. It does not change. He said, they can't change Titus. Because then they have to be able to exhort and refute. Loving a plurality of biblically qualified elders, pastors, is essential in a local church. It's essential in a local church. 
But now there's a second way I want us to see from here in Titus and what Paul is sharing with him. Where we're trying, we're, uh, uh, a local church is going to be a healthy church, a spiritually strong church that is uh, proclaiming the truth, proclaiming sound doctrine and protecting sound doctrine. The first thing you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna be thinking about the, to have biblically qualified pastors. Now let's focus in a little bit more narrow on the pastor teacher, the pulpit of that church. And we do that when Paul comes to chapter two. Because see, again, Titus is somewhat in the role of a pastor teacher here. Again, as I said, he's not gonna stay there like most pastor teachers will. But he has a responsibility to come in and teach and preach and to instruct each of these churches. He's gonna be the primary teacher, getting them going, teaching them what Paul has written to him here. And in chapter two and in chapter three, Paul speaks directly to Titus. And I believe he speaks directly to Titus in this role and saying, Titus, as you go into these churches, here's how I want you to speak. Here's how I want you to communicate. Here's how I want you to preach when you get there to these churches. Because they, you need to establish sound doctrine with them. There's five characteristics of, the, of a pulpit that can help to lead to a, a spiritually healthy church. I think it's even required for a church to be spiritually healthy. The first one is, it needs to be what I call a constrained or a confined pulpit. What I mean by that is when you look in chapter 2 and verse 1, notice when he opens it up and he says, but as for you, and that you there is in the singular, which he's saying, I'm speaking directly to you, Titus. And he's saying it in a way where he's contrasting what Titus was supposed to do with what they were doing, these false teachers were doing. What are the false teachers doing that we learned back in chapter 1? At the end of verse 11, they're upsetting whole families. Why? Because they're teaching things they should not be teaching. They're paying attention to Jewish myths in verse 14. They're paying attention to the commandments of men that are turning people away from the truth. He says, but as for you, Titus, that might be what they do, but that's not what you do. Paul does this often. He does it with Timothy. Remember over in 2 Timothy chapter 4, he says there will come a time when they will not endure sound doctrine, but they will gather up for themselves preachers that will want to tickle their ears. And then right after that, what do you say? But as for you, Timothy, that may be what they do. That may even be what they want. But as for you, here's your responsibility. And notice what he says. This constrained to confined pulpit is when he says there in verse one, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Look over in chapter 3 for a moment. Verse 8 and 9 where he says there to Titus, speaking directly to Titus, this is a trustworthy statement concerning these things. I want you to speak so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. But here's what I also want you to do, Titus. Avoid certain things. 
Don't get into foolish controversies. Don't get into genealogies. Don't get into strife. Don't get into disputes about the law. Why? Because they're not going to be profitable. They're just going to be worthless. That's what I mean when he's telling Titus, Titus, you've got to go into these churches and you've got to have a constrained, a confined pulpit. And by that, I mean this, you're going to be constrained to what is proper and you're going to be constrained to what is profitable. If it's not proper and it's not profitable for the people, don't do it. Don't speak it. The idea of proper there, notice he says in verse one of chapter two, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. That is what, are, what is proper, what would be in agreement with sound doctrine. If it's not in agreement with sound doctrine, it's not proper, you don't say it. But I think it's even this idea of being proper here is going beyond even just what he was to say, but even in some sense how he was to say it. The words he would choose. Essentially that same word there for fitting or for proper is used over in 1 Timothy chapter 2 where it talks about the women in verse 9 are to adorn themselves with proper clothing, what is appropriate for the occasion of where they are. And he's telling Titus, you speak when you speak to the people in a way that's proper to the occasion of what you're trying to accomplish. Also, that same idea of proper I think that's important. If you want to turn with me just for a minute, go back to the book of Ephesians. And go to Ephesians chapter 5. In verse 3 and 4, we see this idea again. And some of it has to do with how one talks, how one speaks. In verse 3 says of chapter 5, but immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. And there's to be no filthiness. There's to be no silly talk, coarse jesting, which are not fitting. That's not proper. But rather the giving of thanks. You see, beloved, it matters even in the pulpit, not just what the man says, but even how he says it, the words he uses to say it. He doesn't need to be vulgar. He doesn't need to go in to using the, the common vulgar language of our time. It's interesting you even go back to Titus chapter 2 where he talks about the young men and even specifically Titus that they need to be sound in speech which is beyond reproach. That your speech needs to be beyond reproach. He's saying, constrain yourself, Titus, to be proper, but also to be profitable. As I said, if you go over to chapter 3 again, remember what he said. This is a reliable statement. I want you to speak these things because these are the things that are good for the people, that's going to be profitable for the people. And as Brian shared with us last night, what we know from 2 Timothy chapter 3, what is profitable? All Scripture. All Scripture is profitable. So he's just saying, Titus, the key to a healthy church is going to be that there is a constrained, a confined pulpit to what is proper, what is profitable. But also, beloved, I want you to look at the end of chapter 2. It needs to also be a consoling pulpit. 
a counseling pulpit, a, a convincing pulpit, if you want to say. Because notice he says, these things speak and exhort. That is, I want you at times through that you're speaking to them, you're going to have to pick the people up. You're going to have to encourage them. You're going to have to strengthen them. That is, you need to exhort to be exhorting them in such a way that you're, you're spurring them on to change. You're spurring them on to this godly character. You're spurring them on to the good deeds that they're called to do. So it needs to be this consoling, convincing, counseling pulpit. But notice thirdly, it also needs to be confronting pulpit. Because then he says, and reprove. Same idea he said back in chapter 1 and verse 13. says you're going to have to reprove them severely. Why? Because I want them to be sound in faith. Reproof. Confront, confronting. Conviction. Saying, Titus, sometimes you're going to have to say hard things. You're going to have to say things that's going to hurt people's feelings. You're going to have to say things that's going to make people uncomfortable. You're going to have to say things that's going to confront them about their sins, about their lust, about their thinking, about the way they're living their life. You're going to have to be willing to say it. You're going to have to be willing to console them, but confront them as well. There's a fourth characteristic of the pulpit. It needs to be in a healthy church. It needs to be what I call a commanding pulpit. Notice at the end of verse 15. Reprove with all authority and let no one disregard you. By commanding pulpit, I'm saying this, that what he wanted Titus to do is to go into those churches and to speak with authority and speak with accountability. You speak with authority, Titus, because what you're speaking is going to be fitting for sound doctrine. And you speak with accountability because notice at the end of verse 15 when he says, let no one disregard you, saying, Titus, as you speak, there's going to be some people in the church. They're going to try to circumvent what you're saying. They're going to try to get out from under it. And he says, don't let them do that. You have to command accountability when you preach. You command authority. You command accountability. And fifthly, I call it confident pulpit. Go back over to chapter 3, verse 8. The end where he says, I want you to speak confidently. That is with certainty. Here's the way I, I, I tend to say that. I never want anyone sitting under my preaching to walk away and say, I'm not really sure if he really believes that or not. I'm not really sure if he's certain about that. He, he seemed to kind of present it as a suggestion. No. He says, speak it with certainty. Speak with certainty. Speak with confidence. May I say to you who are here, because most of you here today are not pastors. But you see, this is one, how you ought to be praying for your pastor. You're praying this for him. 
And you come with a heart that's saying, Lord, speak through the pastor today and let him be commanding. Let him be certain. Lord, let him confine himself to the word of God. Let him be someone, Lord, if I need to be consoled, let him console me through what you have to say to him. If I need to be confronted, I want to be confronted. This is key. Now, let's move to the second major part. Sound doctrine, but now we need to have sound living. There needs to be the practicing and the promoting of sound living in the church as well. It's not enough just that the truth is being delivered. It's not enough just that we have the right doctrinal statement or confession that we've adopted. A healthy church now has to live it amongst the people. And the key word of how Paul is emphasizing this to Titus, when you look back in chapter 2 and even in the first part of chapter 3, it's when he says there what he wants the people to be. What he wants them to be. Verse 2 of chapter 2, older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, and perseverance. And then in verse 3, when he says likewise, he's just continuing that same thing. Likewise, now, I want the older women to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, so that they may encourage the young women. And in the Original language of verse 4 is saying, encouraging the young women to be. To be what? Lovers of their husband. Lovers of their children. Sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, subject to their own husbands. That idea of to be is where he's emphasizing the character that he wants of the people. Older men, younger men, older women, younger women. Notice down, as he's, now in verse 6, he begins to address the young men in the church. He wants them to be sensible. And all things show themselves to be an example. That idea of being there, he's saying, I want their character. I'm after their heart. I'm after their soul. I'm after who they really are. Titus, you've got to go in and instruct them about this what I want them to be. And what is the motivation behind this? Well, look in verse 5. Why is it that he's speaking about the older women and the older and the younger women and how their character is so important because at the end of verse 5 it's so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Why about the older men and even to the younger men? They need to live a high character and godly character, sound in speech in verse 8, which is beyond reproach. Here's why. So that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. Why is it he then addresses in verse 9 what he wants the bond slaves to be? And being subject to their own masters and everything, to be well-pleasing and not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith. It's so that they will adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in every respect. He's saying this is even, 
Titus, this is going to be key to the evangelism in this church. They want to have credibility. The credibility will be is when they have godly character. So if all the world here is what we say, but they don't see it, saying you're dishonoring the word of God. We're not adorning the doctrine of God, our Savior, the salvation that we've experienced. And notice something else that's very important. What's going to be the means for this? Well, he tells us there beginning in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us, discipling us to what? To deny ungodliness, worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession that are zealous for good deeds. Well, understand, beloved, there's no way a church on the Isle of Crete would have been a no-lordship church, an easy-believism church. Because what Paul just said to Titus is, Titus, you go in and teach them, they need to be pursuing godly character as an older man, an older woman, a younger man, a younger woman, as a bond slave. And even as he goes on to move into chapter three, here's what you need to be again in regards to society at large and your submission there and the authorities and your obedience and being ready for every good deed. He's talking about that. But what's at the foundation of all that is the gospel of salvation the grace of God that has appeared to them. And he's saying, if the grace of God has genuinely appeared to you and you've been brought to salvation, it will also be instructing you, teaching you, disciplining you, discipling you on denying ungodly and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. That's what he's saying. He picks this back up. In verse four of chapter three, when he speaks about the kindness of God our Savior, when his love for mankind has appeared, he saved us. That's the key phrase there. He saved us. When the kindness of God and his love appeared, he saved us. He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but instead he saved us according to his mercy. He saved us by the washing of regeneration. He saved us by renewing by the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us through Christ Jesus, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So in Titus, you've got to go back and teach them about how it is they were saved and teach them about what happens when they are saved. That's the means. That's the reason. And notice, he's not just after their character. 
He is after their conduct as well. I mean, go back and just remind yourself of what he says there in chapter 2 when Jesus gave himself in verse 14 is to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession that are now zealous for good deeds. And how is that going to be produced? It's when he goes and he keeps reminding them, speaking confidently to them in verse 8 of chapter 3, so that those who have believed will be careful to engage in good deeds. At the end of chapter 3, he says diligently in verse 13, help Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way so that nothing is lacking for them. Our people must also learn They have to learn to engage in good deeds to meet pressing needs so that they will not be unfruitful. You see, Titus, you've got to teach in such a way that you want the people there learning and when they really have learned what it is that you're teaching, they will become fruitful. They will be practicing the good deeds. They'll be engaging in good deeds. Their character will be changed and their conduct will be changed. You'll see that coming out of their life. And that's how you know that's a healthy church. Beloved, may I say it like this? May it be just as important that our church, that the people in our church, that you, me, that we have the character and the conduct that matches our sound doctrine, that matches the gospel we preach, that matches the grace of God that we have enjoyed, the kindness of God, the love of God, the salvation of God. Here's how I kind of just put this in my mind. A church that is committed to sound doctrine and committed to sound living is a place where holiness will thrive. A church that is not committed to sound doctrine, thus is not committed to sound living, is where heresy will thrive. And I listen carefully to the last one. A church where they say we're committed to sound doctrine, but they're not committed to sound living of character and conduct. That's where hypocrisy will thrive. Hypocrisy. We want to be faithful in all. How is this going to happen? How is it that, that, that Paul is telling Titus that you're going to Make sure the, the folks are developing their character and their conduct. Well, obviously, it's going to be from the pastor teacher speaking to the church as he's telling Titus. It's going to be from the pastor and the elder body that are going to be there exhorting and refuting. But also, notice, go back to chapter 2 for a moment. Also, just as key, it's the people speaking to the people. He uses the example here of the older women are going to be teaching the younger women. Saying, if we want to have character and godly conduct, it's got to be more than just what comes from the pulpit. 
It's got to be more than what just comes from the, from the, the pastors and the elders. The people also have to be involved in this. See, it involves you. Discipleship is involved. Discipleship with accountability. I love it. Just kind of wrapping this up. I know many of you here probably are familiar with, and we've mentioned it here, I know during the Q&A, the Nine Marks Ministry. And if you go through Titus, the whole book, you're going to find that pretty much all nine marks are there. Obviously, we've been talking about biblical preaching. I alluded to it earlier when you go back to chapter 1, that, that Paul was trying to emphasize to Titus it's going to be essential that each one of those churches has a biblical understanding of the gospel. When you look in chapter 2 in those verses in 11 through 14, it is there you can see it's going to be critical that each one of these churches has a biblical understanding of conversion that are committed to evangelism. We just talked about discipleship and growth. We've talked about leadership. We talked that we can also see there's going to have to be discipline in a church. If it's going to be a sound church promoting sound living, there's going to have to be discipline in the church. We see there's dis discipline back in chapter one. We say it's reprove them severely. We see it in chapter three, where he says in verse 10 and 11, that if you have someone there who's a factious man, you warn him once, you warn him twice. If he won't heed the warning, you reject the man. That's discipline. There's discipleship, there's growth, there's discipline, there's godly leadership, biblical preaching, biblical understanding of the gospel, biblical understanding of conversion, biblical evangelism, even biblical theology. You go through these three, these three just these three little short chapters. And besides angelology, all of the other nine categories in systematic theology are throughout these three chapters. A biblical theology, an understanding of the Word of God. And you see, here's the way I would see it. If you have those eight if you have biblical preaching, if you have an understanding of the gospel and conversion, and you have evangelism and discipleship and growth, and if you have biblical theology and leadership and discipline and discipleship all taking place, then you will have biblical membership when that's happening. happening. And that will be a healthy church. Now I recognize there's gonna be no perfect church Every church is in the process of reforming. Every church is in the process of growing, of becoming healthier. What I would encourage you to do is just to take what you've heard of today and say, this is what I'm committed to. I'm committed to these things. And start always with your own heart and your own life first. But then... It can move you out to say, here, I know how to pray now for my pastor. I know how to pray for my elders. I know I need to be involved in discipleship. I know I need to be involved in doing certain things in the body of Christ. If I want this to truly be a healthy church, 
This is what God calls on me to do. It's what he calls on me to be. Let me close this in prayer. Lord, as we wrap up this conference, I just pray that every person that's here, or at the very least, will take away that if they want to have a right view about something, they have to go to the word of God. And Lord, if what they've heard here this week, this weekend has challenged their thinking, challenged their life in regards just about who God is, about scripture, about man, about salvation, about the church and a healthy church. Lord, I pray they will Submit to your word. I pray that they would respond in loving obedience. Lord, I pray it is our desire that each of these pillars will be strong, will be found in our churches. We want to give you all the glory. We do this out of the wonderful grace and salvation you provided us. And it is in Jesus' name that we pray and ask all these things. Amen. Amen.